Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote Festival in 2019. Tae Yong Ho is the most senior state official ever to defect from North Korea's rigid regime. The former Deputy Ambassador in London joined us to give insight into his previous life, from escorting dictator Kim Jong-un's brother to an Eric Clapton concert, to methods of finding food for a starving population. Ambassador Tay is joined by journalist Anna Fifield, who has written the definitive biography of leader Kim Jong-un, for this unique glimpse into what really goes on in one of the world's most secretive and strange totalitarian states. And while you're here, we'd love you to rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to the first day of spring, which arrived right on schedule, um, which is a relief with climate change. It's making it harder and harder to tell what to predict. And... Um, Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the audience. And if you haven't said Happy Father's Day to your dad yet, don't do it now, wait till the end of the session. <laughs> the phone should be off now. If it's not off, put it off now. Thank you. Um, we're in for a bit of a treat today. Uh, we are going to get the best possible insights uh, available outside the enigmatic, secretive, and bizarre country of North Korea itself that are available uh, in, in insights into that country and its leader, um, Kim Jong-un. Today, we are very privileged to have with us, um, uh, well, you're, you're both a celebrity uh, as, as well as a very serious uh, figure. Uh, this is a man who has taken a life-changing decision, life-threatening decision. And I want you to uh, please welcome Tae Yong Ho, who defected from North Korea, or the term that you uh, prefer, Anna, I think, is escapee. He escaped uh, from North Korea after uh, decades as a career diplomat with the North Korean uh, civil service, with the North Korean diplomatic service. Uh, you left uh, the London posting to defect, to escape, and we'll be hearing your story and your insights into North Korea today. We're also very privileged to have uh, a highly respected and experienced journalist, Anna Fifield. Uh, Anna was the uh, sole uh, bureau chief for the Financial Times in 2004, I think, which is when she first developed her interest, her fascination with North Korea, which has led her to study the place ever since um, and to write her book about it, The Great Successor. Um, Mr. Tay has also written a book about North Korea and about his life, his memoir. It's not available in English at the moment, but it's a bestseller in South Korea. Its Japanese translation is a bestseller in Japan. Uh, and uh, your Chinese language yes. version is also a bestseller in Taiwan, banned on the Chinese mainland. <laughs> even, a, even a book about um, North Korea is apparently threatening to, to the Chinese uh, mainland. So. You're both experts, among other things, on um, Kim Jong-un. We all see him a lot, see him on TV, see him on the internet, see memes of him. He seems kind of familiar. Would each of you please tell us something about Kim Jong-un 
that we don't already know. Surprise us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. oh, first of all, I would like to tell that uh, Kim Jong-un is uh, intelligent, uh, but a merciless guy. And if we uh, look back into his uh, seven or eight years of, of power, he actually achieved uh, tremendously what he wanted. For instance, in the past few years, uh, he uh, raised North Korea's status to a nuclear power state. And then with these nuclear weapons, now he is in the first the ranking of meeting the world leaders. So with these nuclear weapons, he actually succeeded in joining Premier League. Mm. <laughs> 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 Anna? Um, what I'll tell you about Kim Jong-un is that he had a completely abnormal and dysfunctional childhood. Uh, so there was really no way he could ever have grown up anything but abnormal and dysfunctional as an adult, really. And that when he was a child, uh, at the age of seven, his father had a real car modified so that he could drive a real car. He had his very own... At seven. At seven. He had his very own Colt 45 pistol that he would shoot, and it would later turn into the propaganda that he could uh, hit a light bulb at 100 paces when he was three years old, it said. <laughs> uh, and when he was eight years old at his eighth birthday party, he uh, was presented with a little general's uniform, uh, complete with epaulettes and stars and a hat and things, and was told that he was going to inherit the uh, state from his father. And on that day, real-life generals came in and bowed to him and saluted him. And I interviewed his aunt, who was there at that birthday party, and she said from that day onward, it became impossible for anybody to treat him like a normal child or for he himself to think of himself as a normal child. <laughs> so it's not entirely his fault. <laughs> um, Mr. Tay, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm guessing not everybody in North Korea grew up with that sort of experience. What was it like for you? Can you give us an idea of growing up in North Korea? Oh, yes. First of all, I would like to tell that uh, North Korea is the only country in 21st century with a very uh, definite class system. So the North Korean population are divided into three main classes. The first one is called core class, uh, to which I belonged. The second one is a wavering class, and then third one is a hostile class. And majority of the population belong to a wavering class. Only around 15 to 20% of the population belong to core class, which is a ruling or leading class. And in North Korea, the, the place where you live, the condition of your housing, the opportunity for education and good job will be decided by which class uh, you belong to, and now there are uh, almost uh, 32,000 North Korean defectors or escapees in South Korea. Majority of them are from a wavering or hostile class, and there are uh, very few from core class uh, like me. So uh, I am a little, a little bit different, and uh, I enjoyed a very good privileged uh, political you know, privileges, and uh, economically, I received a lot of uh, benefits since uh, I was the uh, deputy ambassador of North Korean embassy in London. So 
uh, that's why you know uh, my I grew up you know quite a different uh, education and lifetime. For instance, North Korean system is very hostile to America. But when I joined uh, English-speaking uh, English school at the age of uh, 14, we were taught by a British a BBC Lingaphone courses, and we were uh, taught to watch American films and British films like uh, Sound of Music or Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, at that time, that was really a shock. So North Korean system is a kind of system where the majority of the people are banned to receive good educations while the system uh, provides good educations to the elite and the core class. Mm -hmm. Another thing that shocked you growing up was learning about something called bacon. Why did that shock you? Yes, because uh, when I was young, I was told that North Korea is the best socialist paradise. Uh, but when I enter that English uh, uh, school, the textbook we see received is a British uh, uh, BBC link up on course, and the, uh, lesson one is uh, English breakfast. And there was a picture, and on the table, uh, there were milk, egg, bacon, ham, or cheese, whatever, so many things. So what the breakfast I had at that time was just uh, rice and the Korean style of uh, soup and kimchi, that's all. But we were taught that I'm, uh, we were living in paradise, while the <laughs> British people, <laughs> the British people in that textbook, they have too many things yeah. on their breakfast table, <laughs> so what is it? And then the, the second the page about the supermarket of uh, the London, and the third one is about uh, the garden and the life of the uh, private, uh, the, the the British is normal life. So I started to compare, what is it, you know? What is, what is, where is the real paradise? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Anna, uh, the contrast between ordinary people growing up in North Korea and even core members. By the way, why is the wavering class called wavering? Why are they wavering? Oh, they think that uh, North Korea is a communist uh, country, but this, the communist system, was not chosen by the Koreans by themselves. Uh, when Korea was uh, liberated uh, in 1945, uh, Russians came in, and they installed the Russian communist system on the part of North Korea. So the political system was not chosen by the Korean people itself. It was imposed by Russian, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the style. So the, and after five years of this uh, liberation from Japanese in 1950, there was a Korean War. Mm -hmm. And there was a fight you see, between North and South. There was a fight between left and right. Mm -hmm. So Koreans fought themselves. So after the fight, the North Korean regime decided to divide the people by uh, uh, categorically dividing which side you are you were on mm -hmm. during the Korean War, because during the Korean War, the UN-led forces almost occupied the whole part of North Korea, but the next stage, the Chinese pushed them all the way back to the south. So this kind of a frequent movement between North and South, and during this process, the people had to choose one side, either to the right or either to the left. So after the war, then the system decided to learn the, 
the consequence, and they divided these, the whole population into several classes. So my grandfather happened to be on the communist side. So that's why I happened to be in core class. If our neighbor happened to be on South Korean or UN side or American side, then you belong to wavering class. So why wavering? If there is another war, or if there is any kind of more political disability or whatever, these people can choose any side, either you know, the communist side or the capitalist side. So that's why they are called a wavering. Yeah. But the people who were already in core class, because their ancestors were on the side of communist forces, so they think that they cannot change. But the people belonging to wavering can choose any side. Mm. So this is why they are called wavering class. You must never be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Anna, the experience uh, that Mr. Tay had growing up in North Korea, um, how did that differ to the experience that the young Kim Jong-un had growing up in North Korea? Yeah. When Tell us about his yeah. upbringing. So when Kim Jong-un was growing up, he really wanted for nothing at all. The North Korean royal family has at least 33 compounds, like big palatial-style compounds in, all around the country. Uh, he spent a lot of time at a beachfront compound in Wonsan uh, on the East Sea, uh, where he, as a child, was going jet skiing and watching movies in the family cinema. Uh, that's the same place that he later took Dennis Rodman to, and he took him jet skiing there too. It's kind of like the, I don't know, Noosa of North Korea. <laughs> uh, and that is also where Donald Trump has said, like, oh, that would be a great place to build some condos one day. So it's like this beachfront paradise. So while Kim Jong-un was growing up and like when he was 10 years old in 1994, the year that his grandfather died, that is when a devastating famine started to take hold in North Korea, which led to the death eventually of one or two million people. As many as 10% of the North Korean population starved to death over the next few years. And those who didn't die survived as skeletons during that period. But Kim Jong-un was there either in Pyongyang or in Wonsan, uh, playing Super Mario on his imported console things, uh, listening to Whitney Houston on the sushi chef's uh, Walkman the, who lived there in the compound. So he had this extremely decadent, rarefied life uh, that he probably did not even know what the people in the country were going through at that time because he was so cut off from real life in North Korea. He was so cut off, he did not even have any relationship with his half-brothers and sisters. So his father had five different families, but so dysfunctional was this family, he kept all of them in different compounds. So Kim Jong-un never met his older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, who he would eventually have killed uh, in Kuala Lumpur Airport. So very dysfunctional, very isolated. And then when he was 12 years old, he was sent off to Bern, the capital of Switzerland, and he spent four years going to school in Switzerland and living the life of a kind of expat diplo-brat. Uh, you know, he was going skiing in the Swiss Alps and swimming in the French Riviera and living a life of luxury while the people in his country were literally starving. Mm. I, I learned from your book, Anna, uh, that when he, in the Wonsan compound as a young boy, when he wanted to play basketball, that specially chosen kids were sort of bust in to play with him. Yeah. And then after the game, we'll bust out again. Mm -hmm. But tell us, why did he take up basketball? Why was it first introduced? Yeah, so this is a fascinating story. So he was 
as a young child, like very obsessed with engines, so planes and boats and anything with an engine, and he would stay up all night long making models and things, and if he couldn't figure out how his model airplane worked or something, he would have the staff call like an actual um, you know, leader in the North Korean military to ask a question of how do I make my toy plane work? So when he, the, he took this obsession with him to Bern, and his mother, uh, who was kind of what today we would call a tiger mum, became very concerned that he was too obsessed with uh, engines and motors and things, and he was not paying enough attention to schoolwork or not spending enough time outdoors. And there is a belief among Korean mothers, north and south, that if you play basketball, you will grow taller. Uh, and maybe it worked because Kim Jong-un is five foot seven, uh, a couple of inches shorter, taller than his father ever was. So she encouraged her son to play basketball. And so he did, and he just transferred his obsession from planes onto basketball. So he, uh, I mean, maybe it's not that unusual. Many American kids probably also slept with their basketballs, but that's what he did as a child in Bern. And then every day after school, he would be out on the basketball courts playing um, pickup games with other kids. And then the kids didn't have to be bussed in. They would just be other neighborhood kids, often immigrants as well, and he would, um, would play basketball there. He would be trash-talking them, apparently. And the other children who were there at the time, they didn't think anything of it, really. They thought the Thai embassy was nearby. They thought he was the son of the Thai diplomats there. They didn't think he was anything weird, except for the fact that there were these Asian adults who would sit in little chairs on the side of the games and kind of clap excessively whenever he <laughs> shot uh, scored a goal. So, so in some ways, that's why he was sent to Switzerland to be able to live a relatively normal life outside of the claustrophobia of North Korea. Mm. Right. And then, as we know, uh, he inherited uh, the leadership of the country early. Um, what, he was 23, 24? Uh, he was 27. We had, 27. He actually mm -hmm. took over. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's the third generation of the Kim family right. to control the country. Uh, North Korea has now existed as a, a state longer than the Soviet Union existed. Mm. We continue often to laugh at North Korea. We laugh at Kim Jong-un, he's a clown, he's a buffoon figure. Maybe after that long and uh, the three generations, and he's still holding power despite all the predictions mm -hmm. that he would not be able, such a young, inexperienced man, uh, seen as a buffoon, could not possibly consolidate power and continue to control the regime. But he has. Is it time for us to take him more seriously? Right. And how does he, what is the secret to the way that he has successfully consolidated and held power? Mm. I think uh, uh, North Korea uh, is not quite different from the previous or the communist uh, the bloc countries. Uh, usually, if we look back the history of Soviet Union or the former uh, Eastern Bloc, this kind of reform or changes of the system took place in third generation. So, for instance, uh, the uh, Gorbachev, mm. uh, he belonged to a third uh, generation of Russian communism. So, the, this kind of changes took was possible to take place. But if we look at the current North Korean system, Kim Jong-un is the only third generation in North Korean leadership. Kim Jong-un is the only uh, man with 30s. 
the people around him are either 70s or 80s. So the, all the leaders around Kim Jong-un belong to second generation of North Korea's uh, communist system. So in communist world, until the second generation are really uh, obsessed with kind of you know, political or socialist ideology. And the people around Kim Jong-un still strongly believe in that kind of uh, uh, the possibility of uh, victory of so-called communism or socialism. And in order to carry out their, you know, the long dream, they put, uh, agreed with Kim Jong-un to put uh, Kim Jong-un. So Kim Jong-un is the third generation. So I think that as long as the current second generation around him in place, uh, it's really difficult to imagine or any kind of change. But you know, time can solve it. So when this second generation retire and the third generation join in together with Kim Jong-un, mm -hmm. then I think we can expect really a good change in North Korea. So that's why I don't see there will be any immediate or fundamental changes in uh, 10 years in North Korean system. But within 20 years, I think uh, North Korea will uh, bring a change. If you look at the China as well, now Xi Jinping's generation are the second generation of Chinese communist history. So only when the third generation come into the power in communist world, then I think that is the real time of the change. So when the 80-year-olds turn 100 and they all die, then there's a chance, <laughs> chance for some change. Yes. Kim Jong-un is the only one in 30s in North Korean mm. leadership now. Yes, mm. So that's why uh, I think uh, the people who are uh, born, uh, let's say that the first generation in North Korean communism is the ones who experienced Japanese colonialism and Korean War in the 50s, uh, the second generation. But the third generation, we can say, who were born either in 80s, like Kim Jong-un, or 90s, especially the people who were born in 90s, uh, they have seen this so-called the peak of socialist welfare system. So that's why the young generation in North Korea are very much materialized. They do not strongly believe in the ideological concept of communism or these things. So they are getting more practical and pragmatic. So it's famous uh, for its ability, the country's famous for its ability to seal itself off from the outside world. Uh, is the younger generation getting any better at getting information from the outside world, or is it just as isolated? Oh, I think the North Korean system uh, and the culture is going two different directions. One way is that the North Korean uh, system uh, under Kim regime is intensifying its control over you see, its young generations. They uh, heavily intensified their measures to prevent North Korea from outside of the world. Uh, but on the meanwhile, there is a strong demand by young generations for better information from the world because of uh, the recent uh, the, uh, technical uh, and IT development. In the past, if you want to watch American or South Korean the films, you should have a kind of this size uh, DVDs. Uh, you have to, you know, hide it any place. But it's sometimes if the police search your body or bag, it can be very easily found out. But these days, uh, in North Korea, even the small 
SD card is possible. In North Korean young generation, they call it nose card. So whenever your body is searched or whatever, they instantly put this small uh, SD card under their socks or inside the nose, <laughs> you know? So because of these new technologies, mm. they can hide you know, their activities. So, and another thing is that uh, in spite of these heavy measures by the regime to prevent North Korea from outside world, this kind of demand uh, for better information actually commercially created the capitalist market network. So if you go to North Korea's black market, many of uh, the vendors are secretly selling South Korean dramas or you know, the films very secretly. So for instance, let's say 20 uh, the chapters of South Korean films, they usually prepare five uh, uh, flashes. They're always the first chapter of this China, the South Korean drama is free. You just give one stick uh, to, with, to test, you know? Right. And this is like a, like some, it's, it's like a drug. So when you watch the first chapter of South Korean drama, then you can't help yourself, so you pay yeah. for the next <laughs> So this kind of, you know, the commercial network actually, you know, uh, changes mm. the North Korean culture and even the languages of the young people. They want to imitate the South Korean languages just like, you know, South Korean young generation. Mm -hmm. yes. When we see those, I mean, everybody's seen those uh, videos of uh, the footage of North Korean people in this rapturous applause and uh, heartfelt love uh, for the leader. Does anybody actually believe the personality cult? Do the North Korean people believe the propaganda? Or is that breaking down? Or has it ever been real? Oh, uh, some of them uh, believe, but a uh, majority of the North Korean people do not uh, anymore uh, uh, believe in that kind of uh, the so-called myth. Yeah, but uh, there is no way because the system uh, is running under a reign of terror. So that's why, and the people are very clever. Uh, they uh, know very well how to uh, do this kind of, you know, double life <laughs> in their lives. So that's why on the surface, the people look very loyal to the system. And then on the meanwhile, if you read, that the Kim Jong-un frequently changes. You see the, the army generals, mm. uh, they, they frequently changes the people around him. So uh, Kim Jong-un is really afraid of the people around him and these kind of you know, cultural changes inside North Korea. Mm. Anna, you've traveled to North Korea uh, more than I think any journalist I've ever come across. Um, uh, you've observed some of the changes that Mr. Tay has been talking about mm -hmm. in terms of uh, a more conspicuous market economy, if we can be so bold as to call it that. Yeah. Tell us about the changes that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of North Korea as this monolithic state that's remained stuck in the Soviet era for the last 70 years. And many parts of it has, and there are many things that Kim Jong-un does that are the same things that his father and his grandfather did before him. But there has been, nevertheless, an enormous amount of change in North Korea, particularly on the economic side. So when this famine took hold in the 1990s, the state had to allow people to uh, trade a little and become involved in entrepreneurial activity because the state couldn't provide rations anymore. So people at that stage began to 
like make noodles or try to sell little scraps of metal that they could to trade it for food and things. So that was a nascent kind of market economy that began then, but it was very much kind of just tolerated and tamped down. But under Kim Jong-un, he has really allowed this system to flourish. So there are now these marketplaces called Dangmadang that exist in every single uh, town and city and village in North Korea. The number has more than doubled under Kim Jong-un's reign to 400 and something. And in these marketplaces, you can buy anything. You can buy pink glittery rollerblades. You can buy a rice cooker from China. You can buy multiple series of South Korean dramas and Chinese action films. You can get your hair cut and things. There is now this real entrepreneurial class that is existing in North Korea, uh, almost with the encouragement of the state. So these marketplaces have been built by the state, they collect rents from the vendors, they collect taxes from them. The state is profiting uh, an enormous amount from this. But also, under the system, the people of North Korea have, to varying degrees, been able to earn their way to a better standard of living. Uh, and that depends, you know, if you're part of the hostile class in the northern reaches of the country and you may have access to the Chinese border, you know, maybe your life has gotten a tiny little bit better under this system. But if you're a corrupt official in the army or a ministry in Pyongyang and you travel and you give out contracts and things, you're making loads of money on the side of your government job. And so there's a lot of wealth that is sloshing around in North Korea now as a result of this uh, marketization system. And I think the reason that Kim Jong-un has allowed this and practically encouraged this to happen is because he knows um, that this is fundamental for him staying in power. His father was 53 years old, I think 52 years old, when he took over the leadership of North Korea. Uh, North, you know, North Korea was on the brink of this devastating famine. The Soviet Union, the client state had, uh, sorry, patron state had just collapsed. China was going through these enormous changes. Kim Jong-il knew at that time he couldn't do anything dramatic in North Korea. He just had to hold on, grit his teeth, and hope he could get through. And he did. He lasted 17 years, almost nothing changed. Um, but he made it, and he died apparently a natural death. Whereas Kim Jong-un was 27 years old when he took over as the leader of North Korea. And I think he knows if he wants to reign for 40 or potentially 50 years as the leader of North Korea, he has to be able to show that life is getting better under his leadership. Uh, partly because of the fact that almost every North Korean has now seen movies and soap operas from the outside world. I haven't met a single escapee who has not seen or heard about what this is like. So people know that North Korea is not the socialist paradise they're told it is. So Kim Jong-un needs to try to at least stop that gap between life in South Korea and China from widening, if not you know, getting, getting uh, closer together. So I think that's why he is allowing more economic activity, he's allowing more uh, economic freedom in a way. And it's really startling in Pyongyang, which is sometimes now called Pyonghattan, because it has changed so remarkably. There's high-rise apartment buildings, 
You can do a yoga class, you can buy a cappuccino. Uh, the people there wear clothes from Uniqlo and Zara. They're, they've got their friends to bring in when they've traveled to China. So there is this millennial, conspicuous consumption class there. And I think Kim Jong-un is doing this because he knows the millennials like him, the people in their 20s and 30s, they have to feel like their life is getting better so that they will remain loyal to him and keep him in power for decades to come, mm. even as the 80-year-olds turn 100 and die. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Mr. Tay, even before the arrival of Pyonghattan, you, you already had a privileged uh, life uh, and, and material plenty You'd been posted to uh, Denmark, Sweden, and then London, yes. where you were deputy ambassador. Uh, why would you walk out of that privilege uh, and take the risk for yourself, your wife, your two sons, your family that was still living in North Korea, uh, the people who worked with you, your colleagues in the, in the embassy, North Korean embassy in London? Why would you risk all of that on your behalf and those around you to walk out. Uh, yes, it's a real, it's a little bit long story, but uh, this kind of. Uh, well, we're going to come to audience Q and A So just hold your horses, think of a question, and please go ahead. Yes. So it's a really a long process of evolution. When I was posted a uh, first time to a foreign country as a diplomat to Denmark, you know, I saw a quite different world, which uh, I uh, uh, from which I was taught. So I expected uh, beggars in the streets or extreme exploitation by the, uh, the, the, the capitalists. But when I arrived in Denmark, I saw a quite different world. It's, there was a really ample uh, welfare system. Uh, and so that is my first doubt about North Korean system. The second thing is that when my sons uh, entered uh, British education when they were young. My first one was in primary school, second one was in high school. Uh, they started to uh, uh, lead a kind of, you know, very tough life. For instance, every four, three or four years, we have to, my family had to switch from free world to hell, you know, to North Korea. <laughs> so after three or four years of staying in North Korea, whole family moved back to London, so to free world after another, three or four years, then we back. So this kind of switch between free world to, you know, most totalitarian state started to uh, uh, raise a lot of questions and al also domestic, you know, discussions even inside uh, my fa uh, family. For instance, when they were young, uh, my sons asked, oh, BBC said something bad about uh, my country. They say, I said that, don't believe BBC's news. Then they said, my son said, does BBC also tell lies? I said, of course, you know, that was my, you know, education. But when they grow up, when they reach uh, college and the uh, high school, their questions are quite different, which used, they asked, why there is no internet in North Korea? Why? For instance, they said, YouTube is very good because it helps a lot to do homework. Why there is, why North Korean government does not allow YouTube to, is the help or raise the education. So at that time, I have to be very honest to them to tell the real and the stories. But when they are back in North Korea after my uh, work in, when they are back, their friends in North Korea bombarded my sons with a lot of questions asking, what's the life in London? You know, how the kids in London uh, spend their time of all these things. But 
my sons cannot tell the truth if they tell the truth about the internet, the films, books, games, whatever, then you see, they would be shocked. So they asked, Daddy, what, we sh what should I do with my classmates? Then I said, if we have to tell something anyway, mm -hmm. so that you should, you'd better read Charles Dickens. You read, all, <laughs> you read Oliver Twist, and then you should reproduce all the stories of <laughs> Oliver Twist. <laughs> Otherwise, if my sons tell different stories, then it, it is against North, the North Cor Korea's propaganda work and North Korea's textbooks, you know, the normal textbooks to the schools. So my sons started to read Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, and then they reproduce. So these kind of contradictions, you know, go, grow from my sons and at you see, last... There are ways you can get your kids to read Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> so as, your, as your, uh, your, your concerns are growing, the contradictions are getting more serious, the kids are getting older, uh, fate intervened in your life in the form of 12 waitresses, 12 waitresses, I think. Yes. Tell us about how the waitresses uh, uh, tipped your fate. Yes, so at that time, uh, my first son was in uh, London College uh, his education was almost finished. But in March of 2016, these 12 waitresses in China, they escaped to South Korea collectively. When this incident happened, Kim Jong-un asked all the university students of North Korean diplomats immediate back to Pyongyang. So my first son had to stop his education in London College, and he was very much frustrated because just a few months were left to finish his education in London. Uh, so uh, he asked, Daddy, what should I do? So I was very angry, you see, and was very much frustrated because as a daddy, uh, I can't even, you know, guarantee my sons uh, the education, you know. So I have to make a, a decision because if my son was sent back to North Korea and in North Korean system, uh, if they were grown enough uh, adults, then you cannot follow your parents in the future. Mm. So that is the, really the last moment whether I uh, should push my sons to North Korean system or I should cut off the, this kind of slavery chain you know, for my sons. So I decided that the last, you know, the things and that the most important mission as a father is to cut you know, this slavery chain from me and from them, you know, from my family to the rest of North Korea. So I decided to, you know, escape North Korea for the freedom, not only for my sons, for my wife and myself. Um, obviously, it's a fascinating story, and we'd love to know more. But we are into audience Q&A time. I've got a big timer here in front of me, and it tells me it's time for you guys to have your turn. Uh, so we have... Um, two microphones, one here and one here at the front. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, please make your way to one of the microphones and uh, I'll signal to let you know uh, who's, going to, who's going to speak, who's going to ask the question. Remember, a question has a question mark at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> it's not a statement, it's a question, um, but love to hear them. Okay, over here, number two, please. Thank you. Uh, my, question is to, my question is to Mr. Tay. Um, you said when you uh, went to Denmark on your first diplomatic posting that you could see there was a difference between what you had told 
Are you able to share with us the moments in your younger life when you began to see difference between the official explanation in your country and how things really were in the West? Oh, at that time when I was young, uh, the so-called socialist uh, welfare system was working. Uh, we enjoyed a food ration uh, in uh, 60s and 70s when uh, I was young. So even though uh, there are a lot of fancy pictures in my English textbooks about uh, uh, the uh, British life, but actually in our daily life there is no any something like a shortage of food or clothes or whatever. So at least uh, my family can uh, go on with the uh, salary of my parents. So there was no so much contradictions. But after uh, the collapse of Soviet bloc in the later of 19, uh, the 90s, the, the North Korean economy uh, started to uh, uh, shrink. And then the, the life in North Korea uh, started to be very, very difficult. And what I expected is that now, uh, at that time, uh, I expected uh, the reasonable and proportionate uh, decision by the regime, but the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, did not take a very uh, uh, intelligent decision. Instead of uh, using all the available uh, financial resources to uh, relieve this kind of famine, he continued to invest the billions of money on developing weapons and nuclear. So, uh, actually, North Korean society was supposed to realize a kind of, you know, the dream of mankind, but actually this kind of, you know, uh, the policy drove uh, North Korea to more totalitarian and more, you know, the, the society where the, the more difficulties are rising even now. So I think uh, that is one of the contradictions and frustrations which I felt. Uh, about the system and the leader. Okay, we'll take a question from microphone number one. Who's next? Um, I would like to ask as a diplomat, what would you say we should do in order to break down the uh, misinformation or the, even the misconception, improve communications between Korea and the rest of the world? The reason I ask is because I went to Pyongyang last year. I am about to go into Wonsan and Sinuju in about a week's time. And Everything that I have seen written by Western university professors, etc., etc., there's so much misinformation. Things like people brainwashed everyone that I've met in, in Pyongyang. They knew, they even knew about how frequently we change prime minister in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I was very surprised. What do you say we should do on the West where we could improve our understanding of Korea? Mm. I think, first of all, we should make uh, a kind of, you know, tailor-made content for North Korean population. So far, uh, the campaign to disseminate outside information into uh, North Korea is so much uh, biased by telling about the advantages of a capitalist free world. Uh, but. Uh, the, North Korean propaganda system continued to brainwash the people that capitalism is not a good system, you know, where there is exploitations, uh, riches get richer, poorers get more poor, these kind of things. So we'd better make a good contents for, to not tell the North Koreans about the concept of freedom, the concept of the 
uh, human rights, democracy. So we should tell them the basic concepts which we all share worldwide. And we should tell what kind of situations uh, the North Korean the people are living in. So we should make this kind of tailor-made contents that is more much effective way instead of telling how good the capitalist system is. Anna, would you like to have a word on that one? Yeah, I think, I mean, the North Korean regime has existed for, or survived for 70 years by isolating itself from the outside world and being able to perpetuate all of these myths and lies. So I think we in the outside world should not be helping them to isolate their own people. Mm. Uh, so like the, anybody in Pyongyang who at Western tourists is gonna see as a member of the core class is not your average North Korean. But we should be trying to flood North Korea with information and to help open their eyes. Uh, you know, the defectors, I've sp SKPs I've spoken to, when they see dramas, they don't just marvel at the storyline, they marvel at the appliances and the kitchens and the, you know, the, the polite language that people are using. Like, we just don't know where that tipping point is going to be. What, like, your son's talking about YouTube. Just what's going to finally break down that barrier and enable North Koreans to act for themselves? Mm. Um, another question from microphone number two, please. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tay. Uh, thank you for your bravery and also uh, for sharing your experience as well, your freedom to share. Uh, my question goes to economics, and most countries, the prosperity relies on either uh, uh, goods that they sell, international trade, or aid that they receive, uh, or debt that they sell on the bond market. I believe that in the last 20 years that those options might have been restricted to North Korea, and uh, we hear of the economy internally is booming uh, with these black markets, as well as spending billions on weapons programs. I'm wondering if uh, you had an insight into the sources of funds that uh, North Korea is able to generate. Oh, a very good question. You see, first of all, uh, North Korea uh, has uh, a lot of means to uh, continue process, uh, reproduce its income. Uh, official ones, of course, may, by selling coal, mineral ores, uh, seafood, weapons even. Uh, to Middle East, uh, the countries like Iran. But on the meanwhile, there are a lot of unofficial uh, the trade. For instance, drug. North Korea, you know, has been one of you know, drug, you know, the trafficking countries uh, the worldwide. And on the meanwhile, uh, also uh, they sold a lot of weapons, missiles to Middle East countries. And also these years, because of heavy economic sanctions, uh, now North Korea are sending more and more laborers to Russia, Middle East countries, and in even uh, China. So this kind of uh, labor export now are becoming the major source of more income for North Korea. So can we assume from that that the sanctions regime imposed on North Korea is not watertight? Oh, it's not uh, working uh, uh, properly. And on the meanwhile, uh, many countries are not uh, strictly uh, observing this uh, UN uh, sanctions. Uh, so that's why it is uh, actually uh, supposed to return all North Korean workers back to uh, North Korea no later than December of uh, this year, but now we are in September. But majority of North Korean workers are still in Russia, China, uh, even in Arab countries. So there is no any decisive uh, measures taken to 
carry out the UN resolutions. Uh, Anna is uh, a correspondent for the Washington Post in North Korea's main ally, support and trading partner, China. How do you see yeah. it from your view? Yeah, I just went up to the North Korean border and I went into this like real estate development place, place which was like, invest in North Korea. They were like building buildings, taking uh, potential investors across the river. They are really um, channeling a lot of energy into this. So yes, they are looking at this on North Korea on the brink of opening up, uh, thanks to Donald Trump. But one thing I was just gonna add, and one big change that's happened in the last few years is that North Korea has become exceptionally good at cyber attacks and hacking. And like they just stole $81 million from the Central Bank of Bangladesh, for example. So they've got all these ways that they are going through, and like the, the WannaCry ransomware was North Korea. So they've been able to make a lot of money uh, through the, these attacks and cause a lot of disruption as well. So they are constantly innovating and getting smarter, you know, even as sanctions get imposed. We'll have a question from the microphone over here. Thank you. Uh, yes. Um, if with, with the latest meetings with President Trump and uh, the South Korean leader with uh, North Korea, do you think anything can come, <coughs> come of that? Mm. And if you were advising President Trump, what oh. would you advise him yes, to do right. uh, differently? And also from China's point of view, from mm. Xi Jinping, what do you think he wants out of that? Uh, first of all, I would like to tell the real character, characteristic of North Korea's nuclear weapons. Now, Kim Jong-un wants to control this North, Koreans, uh, North Korea in more of 40 or even 50 years, like his grandfather or his father. In order to do it, uh, as a leader of North Korea, in, that re in this uh, Northeast Asia re region, he should have something to control North Korean population one way, and the other way, he should control his neighbors, Chinese, <coughs> Russians, Americans, and South Koreans. But how he can control America, big country like America, or prosperous South Korea, or big country like Russia, or uh, Japan, or China, he need a kind of time bomb. If he, no, Kim Jong-un has a time bomb to press at any moment, if he's threatened, then he can control North Korean people and the rest of the world. So in his New Year message uh, on the New Year's Day of 2018, Kim Jong-un officially announced to the world that he has a nuclear button at his desk, at his office. This is not a just a warning, it is true. He has a nuclear button at his office to show that he can press it at any moment. You know, so that's why as long as he keeps this time bomb, people are afraid of time bomb, if there is, he thinks that he can control the rest of the world. So now uh, President Trump is uh, doing a negotiation with uh, Kim Jong-un. One of the mistakes, I think, which President Trump uh, may make in the coming uh, third summit, he may reach a kind of compromise, something like, Okay, as long as you do not press that button, you can keep that time bomb, and I will not uh, make a, I, any kind of threat is against you. Something like, uh, if Trump, President Trump reach a kind of compromise of deal in something like moratorium on its uh, further nuclear test or missile test, and in return, if President Trump delivers a kind of uh, sanction relief, then that is really a dangerous, I think, uh, compromise, which 
America would make with North Korea. So I think the world should try and join together to get rid of this time bomb. And as you asked, the role of China is very important, but now Chinese are not uh, interested in actually you know, remove this time bomb. They think that the war between America and China started. They think that North Korea is necessary uh, for Chinese interest as a kind of bumper zone in this region. So I think uh, it, it is very difficult task for the world to convince Chinese to force North Korea, this regime, to get rid of these uh, nuclear weapons. And you're telling us that the uh, North Korean nuclear capability is non-negotiable. Kim is not going to no. trade that away. Kim, Kim Jong-un knows uh, very well because with this, uh, he understands the merit of these nuclear weapons. Let's, what ha let's review what happened in the past you know, one year time. Kim Jong-un announced that he succeeded, he accomplished these nuclear weapons in November of uh, 2017. And in 2018, he succeeded in meeting couple of times with President Moon Jae-in of South Korea. He even succeeded in meeting uh, President Trump uh, three times. So let's imagine, can the head of uh, America meet the leader of North Korea if North Korea does not have this nuclear weapons? So Kim Jong-un really believes that this nuclear weapons is a r real good tool mm. to move even a big country like America. So he will not give up these nuclear weapons unless there is a very strong pressure, you know, from the world to even increase more sanctions, you know, so that Kim Jong-un should realize that there is no way. But so far, there is no enough sanctions, there is no enough pressure up. All the previous summits with Kim Jong-un only raised the Kim Jong-un's legitimacy mm -hmm. in this region and inside North Korea. Yeah. I think we have time for one final question, please. Uh, you've explained to us how people are allocated to the core class and how they're allocated to the wavering class, but how are people allocated to the hostile class? <laughs> First of all, for instance, if your grandfather was sided with a South Korean or the American side during the Korean War, or maybe your grandfather's uh, brother or whatever, then you belong to a hostile class. That is the first. The second one that during, if your grandparents were sided with the Japanese during Japanese colonial period, you instantly, you see, uh, are belonging to the uh, hostile class. And during uh, North Korea's uh, socialist construction period, for instance, maybe your grandparents belonged to so-called uh, Factional forces which were against uh, Kim Il Sung's dictatorship. Uh, Kim, Kim Il Sung did a lot of purges in uh, North Korea's uh, the history. So, if your grandparents by accident sided with the forces which were against to uh, Kim, Kim Il Sung, then you are the hostile. Most recently, for instance, in uh, 2013, Kim Jong un. Uh, poached uh, the, the people around Chang Sung Tae, his uncle. He even, you know, the persecuted his uncle. But the Chang Sung Tae is not the only one who were persecuted. The people 
who worked together with Samsung uh, Tech, the whole, the central, the department of Workers' Party of Korea, one department under the leadership of Samsung Tech, they were totally gone. All the families of these, uh, the associates with Samsung Tech are gone. So if these families or leftovers for these families, they are naturally belong to hostile class, even though they were not sided with Americans or South Koreans, but they used to be a core class of the uh, North Korean system. But instantly, because of this political struggle, you instantly go to belong to the hostile class. Mm. Because of this political, you know. We could go on all day, but unfortunately, the Opera House is going to kick us out. Uh, so uh, to Taeyong Ho, to Anna Fifield, thank you very much for your time. Anna, thanks for bringing your really deep expertise and as well as some fun <laughs> anecdotes. And Mr. Tay, I should, I should mention that uh, since taking his very brave and difficult decision, uh, he now lives in Seoul under the heavy protection of the South Korean government. He uh, lives and travels incognito. Uh, we hope you can enjoy a little bit of Australian freedom while you're here. Please join me in thanking our wonderful guests. <laughs>